Welcome to Federal Insights Strategic Threat Intelligence, sponsored by Anomaly. Now here's your host, John Gilroy. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guest today is Trish Agliostro, Vice President, Federal Solution Architects, Anomaly. Trish, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. I'd like to jump right into the discussion here and talk about MITRE and their attack framework. What exactly is that for my listeners? So the MITRE attack framework is really interesting because traditionally analysts have used machine-readable intelligence in order to detect threats on their network. So things like IPs, domains, URLs. And as adversaries have grown, grown more sophisticated, we essentially needed our analysis capabilities to match that level of sophistication. And that's where the MITRE attack framework ultimately is going to fit in. What it allows you to do is to describe the goals that an adversary is looking to achieve on their network, and then the techniques that the adversary would then use to go and, and actually accomplish those different goals. This becomes really important because it takes us beyond just machine-readable intelligence and into something that's a little bit more advanced. And now, ultimately, what analysts are able to do is not only to use that data to describe the adversary, but also to then translate that into capabilities to then detect and prevent those activities on your network. And to me, that's one of the most important aspects of the MITRE attack framework, because I like to think of threat intelligence like a weather report, where if I tell you that it's going to rain, but you don't have an umbrella, the weather report's a lot less useful because either way, I'm going to get rained on. And the same idea comes into play when we think about threat intelligence, where if I don't have the tools and the capabilities on my network to be able to detect and prevent those activities, then that intelligence is far less useful. So what Anomaly does is it takes the information that MITRE provides and helps an agency implement and integrate. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's part of it. And I think one of the things that Anomaly that we've really made a, a big initiative around is not just allowing enable an agency to implement the data from MITRE, but also be producers in that process as well. So on both ends of the spectrum, we, we're facilitating the production and the collection of that data, but we're also enabling the integration of that data to make it useful on your network as well. Here we are in Washington, D.C. People talk about campaigns all the time, mm-hmm. but it has a direct application for your world and the federal world of attacks. So attacks are, are done in campaigns, and certain characteristics of those are different from others. Is that right? Absolutely. Uh, and, and especially you've seen recently where we've had things like election hacking. We have other campaigns, things like ransomware, where they were actually meant to destroy and to, to cause impact and outages and costs to different networks. And so we really, for in our world, a campaign can be very, very different from one actor group to another for what they do on an organization's network to another. And so the ability to describe those activities in, in, a, in a higher level way is really important. So many people can go to MITRE and get this information, but the real question is how do you apply it? And, uh, and I'll steal a word from NIH, it's meaningful use. So how do you get meaningful use out of this information from the attack framework? Sure. So I think that that's one of the most important questions. And right now, a lot of times people tend to think of this as just the detection aspect. So, for example, I have APT28, one of the techniques that they might use on my network in order to um, achieve a goal would be something like dropping a particular file. And they use that file in this example to clean up essentially their their footprint so you can't detect them. So if you think about the attack framework now as, as an end user, I know and as an analyst that this file is an indicator of APT28 presence. And what I can take that knowledge then and say, okay, well, I can go and go and detect that file on my network as an indicator for APT28 presence. And now there's two ways to think about that. One is the actual tool idea of now I need a tool that'll help me detect that file. The other idea is that I can actually use it from a policy and prioritization perspective, which I think is really interesting because when you think about security, no one in security says I have way too many resources. I just wish I had more things to do. And what ultimately that means is we need to have really strong abilities to prioritize. 
the MITRE ATT&CK framework, knowing what APT28 does, knowing how we're going to detect them, can ultimately help drive the prioritization of the different security investments that I make. And so if it's a priority for me to be able to detect that file, it has to be a priority for me to buy a tool that can detect that file. Conversely, let's say I'm a small organization, maybe a generic kind of small consulting firm, and APT28 is never going to target me. I'm a small business. They don't, they don't, I'm not enough of a priority for them. I don't need to be as worried about the advanced capability of detecting specific files, but I might need to, so I wouldn't prioritize that, but I do need to prioritize, let's say, protections against ransomware, because that's something that has impacted me in the past and can have direct financial impact. So a threat intelligence platform can help create reports that will allow high-level executives at an agency to make decisions, prioritize their assets to respond to threats. Absolutely, yes. I think, And especially when you combine that with the attack framework, I think what the attack framework does is bring it from just a machine where traditionally security intelligence has been focused around machine-readable intelligence. It brings it more to an executive-level conversation where I can look and say, okay, this actor is someone that targets me. These are the techniques that they use. I'm going to need controls that are going to correlate to those different um, techniques that they use. And so ultimately, that's a positive thing because now I'm not just looking at this as an individual, you know, machine-readable intelligence, I'm looking at this from an executive perspective and how this can impact my business operations. And that, to me, is ultimately closer to strategic intelligence. So what we have here is we have the ability to take and, and integrate the information that MITRE provides in order to make strategic decisions for an agency to prevent being attacked. And so it's the umbrella and the weather report. Is, oh, now now it's going to rain tomorrow. Bring an umbrella or yeah. bring these specific tools to react. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, and to take that analogy further, right, is that if it's going to be windy, that umbrella is not going to help you, yeah. right? And so I need to have a rain jacket. Or if I know that I have to walk to work, I, I probably want rain boots so I don't I don't have to step in too many puddles. The same idea with security controls. The more you, you elaborate and you understand the threat and the tools and the techniques that they use, the better you can make decisions on what are the right tools that I need as an organization to prepare and effectively defend myself. Good. Uh, my guest today is Trish Cagliostro. Vice President, Federal Solution Architects, Anomaly. I'm your moderator, John Gilroy, on the discussion, Strategic Threat Intelligence and Government, sponsored by Anomaly on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Know your adversaries with Anomaly. Anomaly arms your security team with highly optimized threat intelligence, giving you visibility into hidden attacks targeting your network. Organizations rely on the Anomaly threat platform to detect cyber threats, understand adversaries, and respond effectively. Knowledge is power. Stay up to date on the latest emerging threats with the Anomaly Weekly Threat Briefing. Subscribe free at anomaly.com slash WTOP. That's Anomaly with an I. Know your adversaries. Be cybersecurity enlightened. Welcome and thanks for joining us. My guest today is Trish Cagliostro, Vice President, Federal Architects, Anomaly. Trish, uh, tell us a bit about how agencies are taking advantage of the cyber threat intelligence to improve their cyber posture and, and managing this risk. Sure. So when we think about risk-based intelligence, I think one of the important things to understand is, is what threat intelligence ultimately is. And essentially, threat intelligence are going to be things that we know or, or think are bad. And so from an organization's perspective, threat intelligence is much more temporal in nature. It changes very quickly. And, our, and that's the nature of our adversary. Our adversary changes very quickly. So as we're collecting that things we know are bad or things that we suspect are bad, what an agency is ultimately then able to do is to really improve their security posture by leveraging that data to make it much more dynamic. Uh, traditionally, security controls have often been very static. It's a manual process to update. And as our adversary continues to mature and continues to become more sophisticated, it's really important that our, de- our devices and our security controls 
have the ability to meet that level of change within the adversary as well. So from a view from 40,000 feet, what we see is um, uh, a static uh, attack to a, a dynamic attack that has to, has to be quickly understood and responded to. Correct. Yeah. The, the days of, of just getting um, once, you know, once a week you have change management come in and make a new firewall rule, they're, they're just not sufficient anymore. We have to have the ability to update our security controls in real time. And especially because we have the data now. In the past, you know, we one of the challenges with dealing with threat intelligence is that you, you deal with false positives and it could potentially block something that's part of your legitimate business functions. And so as we're thinking about that, getting more dynamic and making our controls more responsive, we have to make sure that we also think about things like accuracy and, and the ability to take action on those, those that intelligence as well. It's interesting you talk about firewalls because there's some federal agencies that have firewalls with thousands and thousands of rules. And how, how, how can you get out the book of 500 pages and change a certain specific rule? You have to take it to the next level, to the strategic level to understand. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a great example. And I, I think back in my own career, you know, we would look at our different security controls and we would see a signature, for example. And we would look at the signature and it's maybe two or three years old and the guy who created it is no longer working there. And so we all kind of look around and go, well, I guess we're blocking this forever. And so I think one of the side benefits of threat intelligence is that ultimately what's happening is it's explaining why we do what we do. Because if I can document it back to, oh, I created the signature of this firewall rule because of this incident on my network or because of this campaign, maybe the campaign's not relevant anymore and I can get rid of it or I have another protection, for example. But ultimately, to me, one of the big benefits of threat intelligence is quantifying why we do what we do on the security side. I'd like to focus a little bit on risk again here. Um, so we know there's vulnerability data out there, and there's also threat intelligence data out there. So, so how does that, um, so how does that all play with with uh, evaluating risk? Sure. So one of the most common questions I get from customers is they want the ability to tie vulnerability to threat, and the challenge becomes there is there's not really a natural fit that link those two data types together. Now that being said, ultimately vulnerability is is quantifying your risk. Where, for example, if I have an attacker that has a particular exploit, if I'm not vulnerable to that exploit, then that's not necessarily relevant to me. So one of the things that we've done at Anomaly is we've looked at vulnerability as essentially the a, a data point as part of the as the ability to detect something on your network that you wouldn't see otherwise. And where, a good example and a good way to think about this, what, what a SIM, for example, will allow you to do is to say, I've been scanned by this particular IP address. Now, when you're talking about a large federal agency, they've been scanned 4 million times a day by 4 million different IP addresses, so that, that's not helpful to them. However, if I also told you that that scan occurred of a director-level asset that has a series of vulnerabilities on it, so we have an inherently risky asset, and also I had a series of, of threat detections on that, that becomes something that is a priority for me. And so when I think about that approach, what I really like is we're using vulnerability as a data point to essentially help me identify something that I wouldn't be able to see on my network or I would traditionally dismiss as a false positive or noise. We've some, uh, seen some reports out of the federal government talking about protecting high-value assets. Mm -hmm. I think they're finally coming to the point where they're looking and say, how, how do we even identify them and move from there? Absolutely. So one of our, our biggest use cases on the federal side is exactly that scenario where in a perfect world, we would monitor all assets equally and we would have no issues, but that's that's not realistic. And so when you identify those high value assets, I have to think about detections a little bit differently than I had in the past. I might, so for example, if I have a high value asset that I know has a vulnerability that I know an attacker is targeting, then it's going to prioritize for me patching that system. 
right? But if it's, a, it's not a high-value asset, then it's probably going to be of a lower priority to patch it. So from a high-value asset perspective, I think that there's additional layers of detection and additional advanced analysis that we as industry have to enable the government to be able to provide. Otherwise, just knowing it's a high-value asset is is kind of that that first base level step. It needs to we need to take it further by enabling advanced detection and prevention on that. So what anomaly can do is it can help federal leaders operationalize. I guess that's operationalize the threat intelligence that it has. Absolutely, yeah. That's that's a big piece for us is operationalizing not only your threat intelligence data, your vulnerability data, and ultimately combining these two traditionally very broad data sets. Uh, to ultimately be able to down-select and produce high-level risk-based alerts that are critical for any federal agency to be able to see. So what we're doing is we're, we're implementing all this uh, knowledge that we discover and prioritizing it. And so uh, the priority would be the high-value assets to protect first. Absolutely. Those are going to be the the first level of what we need to look at. And, and the reality is if we're looking at an asset, let's say, that's not a high-value asset, even if it has a serious incident on it, if the risk that it poses to the rest of your enterprise is minimal, then even a medium-level priority uh, incident on a high-value asset is, is likely going to trump that because the risk that it will introduce to the organization or the overall impact that it could have is significantly higher. Tell me a little bit about DHS and their automated indicator sharing. Is this is a concept you're familiar with? Absolutely. So the automated indicator sharing program is really interesting. Because it's essentially driving us towards facilitating collaboration between the public and private sector. I know one of the challenges that industries face when you're dealing with the public sector is that they often feel like data will go in, but nothing comes back out. And the the AIS program seeks to solve that problem. And so ultimately what that allows organizations to do is to automatically share intelligence back to DHS and then receive intelligence that's shared from other organizations. And now the shared intelligence becomes very beneficial from a risk perspective because you know that if other people are seeing this very high confidence, uh, very malicious indicator, and ultimately that's shared to you, that ultimately allows you to improve your own security defenses based on what the community is seeing. And because of the proliferation of attacks, it has to be automated. It can't be done manually at all. Uh, agreed. And, and I think we're making really big strides towards that automation process. And as we continue to mature as an industry, I think that's that's where you're seeing us go from an information sharing perspective. That while today the automation occurs in the transmission of the indicator, I think one of the important things is the automation and the generation of that indicator as well. My guest today is Trish Cagliostro, Vice President, Federal Solution Architects at Anomaly. I'm your moderator, John Gilroy, on the discussion, Strategic Threat Intelligence in Government, sponsored by Anomaly on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Anomaly are the experts in threat detection and intelligence. Organizations rely on the Anomaly Threat Platform to detect threats, understand adversaries, and respond effectively. Let the experts at Anomaly arm your security team with highly optimized threat intelligence and show you the hidden threats targeting your environment. Get started with expert insights from Anomaly. Subscribe to the weekly threat briefing and stay updated on the latest threats. Register free at Anomaly.com WTOP. That's Anomaly with an I. Know your adversaries. Be cybersecurity enlightened. Welcome back to the panel discussion, Strategic Threat Intelligence and Government, sponsored by Anomaly on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. My guest today is Trish Cagliostro, Vice President, Federal Solution Architects, Anomaly. I'm your moderator, John Gilroy. You know, we mentioned earlier about collaboration. That's a nice, fine little term. And collaboration uh, is easy to say, but hard to implement. Tell me about uh, barriers to collaboration around cyber threat intelligence. When you talk about collaboration and security, the answer of receiving shared intelligence is an easy one. People want extra visibility. There's an easy value proposition there to, to industry. Where it gets more complicated is around the sharing the data that you produce and that you collect 
And essentially because the, the wider the distribution, potentially the less valuable that intelligence becomes. And so from an organizational perspective, one of the biggest barriers to entry for, for collaboration is actually getting organizations to be willing to produce and share their own intelligence. And it becomes complicated because organizations that you normally would compete with are often going to have the best and most relevant intelligence for your network. So that, that to me is a really important element of it. And the other piece of the barrier to entry for collaboration is that it, we have to find a way to make it a priority for organizations. I think ultimately this is getting better. And I think one of the, the ways that we can do this is by enriching the intelligence that they're receiving. Uh, one of the most difficult things in the world as an analyst is when I tell you an IP address is bad because then you're like, it's bad. Well, what kind of bad? Is it a scan? Is it, is it you know, how confident are you that it's bad? Essentially, there's a whole bunch of additional data that I need. So I think from an analyst perspective to, to, any, to facilitate collaboration, one of the things that we can do to, to address that barrier is to essentially enrich the intelligence in programs like the MITRE ATT&CK framework, um, programs like Sticks and Taxi, where you're pulling in actor profiles or attribution, ultimately enrich that intelligence and help the analysts want to be able to share. You know, when an outsider reads about uh, collaboration, they hear this phrase that seems funny from the outside, event information. <laughs> and and if you have an event you want to promote, but that's very, very carefully guarded secrets for some companies there. And they, they want to protect this event information, whether the IP address is dynamic or static or if it's valuable or not valuable. So I can understand why people, it could be considered to be proprietary information, couldn't it? Absolutely. And and especially because the, one, the, the big admin, and I would say one of the biggest moments that we've had in information sharing was the Cybersecurity Act of 2015. And so in addition to the proprietary aspect of sharing that data, because that's that's been one of the biggest traditional hurdles, the other aspect is the liability piece, where let's say by sharing that data, you're essentially exposing what might have caused that particular breach or what might have caused that incident. And one of the biggest pushbacks on, on information sharing initially was the liability aspect, where in order to incentivize it, what the federal government did was say, we're going to address that liability concern. Um, we're going to incentivize you by saying, yes, you are now um, no longer, like, essentially, if you share data, you're reducing your liability. And I think that's that's one of the aspects of it, too. It's not just the proprietary data. And, and that piece of it, too, when you think about proprietary data, is you, you invest all these resources in, in developing the intelligence. Are you going to freely give it away to another organization now? So similar to what we were talking about before, and to kind of tie it all together, is that if we're going to encourage people to share their best intelligence and we want them to share their best intelligence, they have to be able to see the value that comes back for that. Now, in the real world, I imagine the, uh, there's two sides to this. You know, there's a blessing and a curse to mm-hmm. sharing information. And so maybe you can expand on that for some of our listeners. Sure. So in the blessing side, we have, I would argue, we have some of the best visibility that we've ever had um, within the security industry. Threat intelligence, there's an overwhelming amount that's available. There's premium feeds, there's open source feeds, there's there's potentially unlimited intelligence that's available to an organization. So in that sense, it's a blessing that I, I, I potentially can have unlimited external visibility into my external risk and my external attackers. On the flip side becomes, how can I use that data in my organization? And so now that I have the visibility, I want to use the visibility. And the, the curse aspect of it becomes I have to make sure I architect and I engineer my solutions in my environment in order to account for this. So, for example, one of the things that we've done as Anomaly with the Anomaly Threat Platform is that we, we've we dealt with the fact that you essentially can take hundreds of millions of indicators and compare that against hundreds of millions of blog sources uh, or lo- events per day or something like that. Sims weren't designed to do that. And so as we're thinking about threat intelligence, we need tools that can handle kind of the big data problem of threat intelligence 
Otherwise, that visibility isn't isn't really as useful to us. When it comes to sharing intelligence here, uh, we know that the bad guys are sharing intelligence. Mm-hmm. I guess it's up to us to share it as well. Do you think this is going to make progress in the next two to four years? So I really hope so. And I think you've seen you've seen a lot of the the barriers to entry that go away, and a lot of the hurdles, and a lot of the reasons why we don't share. I, I think for the next two years, right now, where I would argue is that we've we've got the automated transmission of intelligence. We're, we're past the point where people are emailing or calling each other with intelligence, which is positive because that's where we were realistically two to four years ago. Now we've automated that transmission. Mm-hmm. To me, the next step is, is twofold. There's two goals in mind that I have that I would love to see over the next two to four years. One would be the, automat- the automation of the generation of that intelligence. So rather than a human actually doing all this analysis and doing all that research and then ultimately deciding to share something, actually committing as an organization to say, if something meets these this criteria, I will automatically share it. There's no human in the loop. And then the other piece that I would say is also really important is is getting us away from just sharing machine-readable intelligence. I, I would argue today that probably 95% of the intelligence that's shared is ultimately going to be machine-readable intelligence. And as we see programs like the MITRE ATT&CK framework, as we see the ability to get to higher level, more more strategic level intelligence, I would love to see us really mature our capabilities around expanding on sharing of that strategic level intelligence. Do you think concepts like uh, uh, artificial intelligence can be applied to this understanding, these vast attacks? Absolutely. And when you get into artificial intelligence and machine learning, that's really the only achievable way to automate this, the collection and sharing of the intelligence. There's just no way to do it otherwise. There's too much data. It takes too much time to produce it. And so capabilities like automation and like AI and, and machine learning need to come into play. And and even when you're consuming that data, those pieces have huge aspects where and huge importance where if I receive an indicator and if I, don't, if I have to, what an analyst does is they have to go and manually vet it, manually understand it. And essentially what a product like ours can do is to take that indicator and automate that analysis process. So that's what you're seeing the industry heading is, is essentially adopting more capabilities like AI, like big data. I'd like to thank today's guest, Trish Cagliostro, Vice President of Federal Solution Architects, Anomaly. I'm your moderator, John Gilroy, and you're listening to Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. For more on this discussion, visit federalnewsnetwork.com and search Strategic Threat Intelligence. Thank you for listening to Federal Insights Strategic Threat Intelligence, sponsored by Anomaly on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. The entire program can be found on demand at federalnewsnetwork.com. Search Strategic Threat Intelligence. Know your adversaries with Anomaly. Anomaly arms your security team with highly optimized threat intelligence, giving you visibility into hidden attacks targeting your network. Organizations rely on the Anomaly threat platform to detect cyber threats, understand adversaries, and respond effectively. Knowledge is power. Stay up to date on the latest emerging threats with the Anomaly Weekly Threat Briefing. Subscribe free at anomaly.com WTOP. That's Anomaly with an I. Know your adversaries. Be cybersecurity enlightened. Okay, forest animals, today is a new day. Kids are coming to the forest, and it's up to us to make their visit a good one. Sparrow. Yes? Have you practiced the most popular bird songs for the year? Of course. Catchy. I like it. Okay, river. Dude. How's the temperature? It's a refreshing 52 degrees, man. Perfect for a little riverside shoeless relaxation. Ah, good. Owl, you here? Of course. Who's asking? I am. Look, you know the drill. Sleep during the day, scare the kids at night. Perfect. I love my job. Uh, oak tree? Sup? Still in the same place I left you last year. That's what I like. Consistency. Well, it's not like I'm going anywhere for the next couple hundred years. I know. I love it. Uh, turtle. 
Turtle. He's not here yet, man. Ugh, he's late every morning. You'd think he would have learned by now to leave the night before our meetings. Okay. Squirrel, has anybody seen Mr. Squirrel? The forest has been preparing just for you. Visit a forest near you today. To learn more about cool things to do in the forest, visit discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council.